we'll do a quick review to try to bring you up to speed about where we've been and what we talked about. In the very first lesson, we sought to understand the word that we translate into the word church in English. The Greek word is ekklesia, and it means an assembly of people, a group of people. And it might be organized like a court system or like a congregation, or it may not be organized like the mob that wants to kill Paul in Acts 19. It just simply refers to a group of people. And the context tells you what that group of people is and what they're about and why they are gathered, why they're assembled. So when it comes to talking about God's group or God's assembly or God's church, the New Testament uses that in two ways. One in the what we call the universal sense, which simply refers to the group of all those who are saved, all those who are in the one body of Christ. And in the second sense, what we call the local sense, refers to a section or a subset of that larger body. And it is those who gather in a particular place, in a particular history, point in history, um, such as the church in Corinth or the churches of Galatia or the church in Philippi. And these two relate in this way that we have here on this chart. And I know some are listening outside. Um, So again, I'll repeat what this chart looks like for those who can't see it. That you have circles that represent people. And so some of the circles have names in them like Saul's name um, or uh, our random people, Joe, Mike, and Ann. And some of these circles are off by themselves and some of them overlap. And so to represent the universal church, which as Paul says is made up of individuals, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27 and 28, you have the individual lines drawn from each circle, each person to Christ, representing all those who are saved in the body, who are saved in God's people. And then you have overlapping circles and a little orange area where they all meet, and that represents the local assemblies, what people do together. And so we looked, for example, the church in Corinth, where you have, in chapter 5, a brother who is having relations with his father's wife. And Paul rebukes the church, the local assembly, for not addressing that, for allowing him to associate with them, to be a part of them, and not rebuking him. Because he makes this point that you need to rebuke him and disassociate so that he'll know he's not in Christ. He says, we want him to be saved, verse 5. But if he just continues living this way, he's not going to realize that you recognize he's not with God. He's not following Christ. And so you need to make that point to him. And so you have a church where there's a member who's a part of the local assembly, but not part of the universal assembly. He's disconnected himself from Christ. Sardis is kind of the other side of the coin where, in fact, most of the members in Sardis have disconnected themselves from Christ. He says, there's only a few of you who are worthy to walk with me in white. And so he's urging them to repent, to change, to adjust their choices so they can be reinstated into the body of the saved. We made the point that death does not separate us from being in the body of the saved. Death does not take us away from Christ, even though it takes us away from our local assemblies. Last night, we talked about purpose. Particularly the purpose of the universal church. I made the point that growing up, my vision of Christianity, which was totally wrong, was that being a Christian is like getting to a plateau on a mountain. Your job is to get there and just not fall off. I didn't realize that God had a vision for myself, for every person who is a saint, who is a Christian. He, He wants us to be something. He wants us to do something as those individual members And so we looked in Ephesians primarily and saw that God wants us to be conduits for his praise. That the reason he redeems us and adopts us and gives us an inheritance is so that his glory and majesty and kindness will be recognized in the world as well as in the spiritual realm. 3.10 of Ephesians, we are to show off the wisdom of God. That we are to be workmanship, 2.10, that he creates for good works. That as individual members of the one body, it's our job to be servants in the world. That we are to be a temple for his dwelling. That the collective one body of saved is now a spiritual temple. No longer the tabernacle, no longer the physical temple in Jerusalem, but a spiritual temple for God's spirit. That we are his companions and his children in 1 Peter, we are priests to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
In Isaiah and several other places in the Old Testament, we are monuments. So the world will remember the good things God has done. The world will know how great God is. And so we ended last night with this question. If these are the purposes of the universal church. And we made the point that one of the reasons there's so much confusion in the world religiously is people mix up these purposes with the purpose of the local church. One of the conclusions that we should draw when we recognize there is a distinction between the universal one body and there is a distinction between the local bodies, the local churches. If God created both, it means he created them for related, in our case, but separate reasons. And when we mix up those purposes, when we don't understand what those are, that's one of the reasons why you get so much confusion out there. So if these are the universal church purposes, meaning God wants me to be a part of these things, to be doing these things as, as an individual, wherever I am, wh- whether I live in a, the United States, whether I live in Asia, whether I live in Africa, wherever I am in the world, he wants me to be a part of this, regardless of what local group I'm a part of. So then what is the purpose of the universal church? How does, their, how does the, the local church purpose relate to these purposes? And we use the illustration that I wish I could take credit for. I just want to be clear. I did not come up with this illustration. Um, um, but it's been so helpful for me, and that's why I share it. Uh, the illustration of faculty meetings in school. That the reason faculty meetings exist are so to teach teachers to be better teachers. And they, they talk about the content of their teaching. They talk about how they're going to teach. And we talked about all these different scenarios. There's a different kind of faculty meeting someone might be looking for as a teacher. And then maybe there's one faculty meeting that's stressed about all of the rules and the agenda and do exactly what they're supposed to do according to what the administration said. Or there's another one that is, doesn't care about any of that, and they just get together and they hang out and they party and they have ice cream and cake and they have a grand old time um, with their other fellow teachers. And, and other people just want to feel good about being teachers, and so they go and they listen to this motivational speaker. And they don't really actually talk about being a better teacher. They just listen about being, feeling good about being a, a teacher. And there's another one that's, that invites these students in and it says, you know what, we're going to have the students come be a part of the faculty meeting. And so hopefully they'll pick up what they're supposed to learn in the faculty meeting so that, that the meeting will do my job for me. And we ask the question, are any of those teachers good teachers just because of the faculty meeting they chose? And the answer is no. Of course not. In fact, most of those scenarios aren't actually accomplishing the purpose of the faculty meeting. Which is supposed to help teachers become better teachers so they can go out into their classrooms and do a better job. And we suggested that that is how the purpose of the local church relates to the purpose of the universal church. That God created local assemblies to be a gift to the universal church. And he created the universal church to be a gift to the world. And when we mix that up, We forget the charter God has given us as members of the universal body and as members of a local body. Every organization that exists, exists for a reason. Whether you're talking about a business or you're talking about a school or you're talking about a nonprofit, any organization that's ever created often writes a charter, which is a statement declaring why do we exist? What is our purpose? What is the meaning for us getting together and do what we do? And any organization that forgets its charter eventually falls apart. Because if there's not a unifying goal, a unifying endeavor, all of the different opinions, all the different personalities will begin to pull it apart. And Satan is so good at subtle poison. One of the things he's done in the religious world and our culture is he has caused people to forget And confuse the purposes of the universal church and the purpose of the local church. And so people forget their charter. They forget why God created this and what it's supposed to accomplish. And so tonight we're going to try to remember what that charter is from the local sense. And I've debated on how best to go about this in a succinct manner. So what I decided to do was to glance through Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 as we look to understand the purpose of of the local assembly, the local church. Because in chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation, you have several letters written to seven different local churches. 
And so what I want us to do is, we're not going to have time to read through this. I actually meant to ask you to read these chapters uh, last night. I'm sorry, I forgot to uh, encourage you to do that so you would be more prepared. But I'm going to summarize what Jesus says to each of these churches. It's kind of interesting. Jesus is really the one talking in these, these letters, and John is just the writer. Jesus is actually directly giving instruction to these churches, and John's just recording what he's saying. And the vast majority of these churches, he has something positive to say and something negative to say. And so we're going to try to classify broadly, generally, what kinds of things are they praised for doing and what kinds of things are they rebuked for doing and what does that tell us about local assemblies and what God envisioned local assemblies to do and be their purpose. So the first congregation he talks about is the congregation of Ephesus in the first seven verses. And they're praised in verse 2 for not tolerating evil men. So the very thing that is an issue in Corinth about not dealing with the man who's living in sin is not a problem in Ephesus. They can't tolerate evil. They rebuke evil. They deal with it and they address it. And they don't let people live in their sin and kill themselves spiritually while just standing by idly. They also show false teachers and false prophets to be false. They really care about truth. And and they stand up for it. And so they're praised for this. But, verse 4, they forgot how to love. It says they abandoned their first love. And whether he's talking about brethren, he's talking about God, those two really go hand in hand. First John makes that point. You can't love God if you don't love the brethren. I really think we should probably look at this as broadly as possible. They just forgot how to love. And he warns them, you need to remember how to love and do the deeds you did at first, or I'm going to come and I'm going to take away your candlestick. You're going to stop being my local assembly if you don't repent of your failure to love. The next church, Smyrna. He actually has nothing bad to say about Smyrna. He praises them for their faithfulness despite persecution. He talks about the mistreatment that they received and how they weren't um, uh, uh, being treated fairly by these people who claim to be Jews. And he praises them for remaining faithful. But he warns them. He admonishes them. He says, "But, but don't give up yet. Don't get lax. It's not over. You need to be faithful until death. Persecution is going to continue. And so you've done really well. Don't let up. The next church, the church in, uh, in Pergamum, they're praised for a very similar reason that they are also faithful despite persecution. They held fast to their confession in Christ, their trust in Christ. But they also have some people there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now, Balaam is an Old Testament character. I don't think there's actually a guy named Balaam there teaching. I think the point he's making is long story short, Balaam was a prophet of God that wasn't very faithful. And God won't let him curse Israel on behalf of the king of Moab. But he figures out a workaround. He tells the king of Moab, all you have to do is get Israel to commit sexual sins and worship idols, and God's going to destroy him himself. And so that's what the king of Moab does. Uh, it follows Balaam's advice, and it's sure enough, God curses Israel for their wickedness. And so when he talks about the teaching of Balaam, that's what he refers to in verse, uh, verse 15, where he talks about they eat things like Christ to idols and commit acts of sexual immorality. He says, okay, you remain faithful, but you're putting up with this false teaching that's leading to evil practices. And you need to change that, and you repent of that. The church in Thyatira, they actually get the most attention of all seven. There's more said about them and more positive said about them than any church. And that's kind of interesting when you see what's negative said about them. But he praises them for their deeds. That they're doing great things. They're doing good things. He praises them for their love. He praises them for their faith and for their service. He praises them for their perseverance. There's no other church in this list of seven that he spends as much time praising them for. And he even says, you're actually doing more than you did at first. Your deeds are greater than the ones that you began with. But you also have a problem. That you put up with Jezebel. Now again, I don't think there's actually a woman named Jezebel. This is also an Old Testament character. 
She was the, the wife of King Ahab, who's recognized as the most wicked king of Israel. She had hundreds of prophets of, uh, of God killed during her day. But the situation is actually very similar to the previous congregation. That she's teaching people to eat things, sacrifice to idols, to worship idols, and to commit acts of sexual immorality. The difference seems to be that in Pergamum, there's still a chance for the most of those people to repent and change. And he makes a point about Jezebel and says, I've waited long enough. I gave her a chance to repent, and she does not want to repent. She's not interested. And so what do you need to do? You need to separate from her. You need to get away from her because she and hers are going to be destroyed. And if you don't make a distinction, then you're going to get caught up in it. And so you have all this great stuff about Thyatira, but you also have this. Then we get to the church in Sardis. We've actually looked at Sardis a lot. Um, it's one of those examples on our chart. So you're probably familiar with, at least most of those here are probably familiar with the scenario. They have a reputation that they're alive, that they're doing well, but they're actually dead. So he says you need to wake up and do the deeds you did at first, um, and you need to complete the, un, the incomplete deeds. The church, um, the, the, the positive is there's a few of them that haven't sold their garments. The church in Philadelphia, very similar to Smyrna, there's nothing negative said about them. They're praised for their faithfulness. They kept King Jesus' word and his faith, but they're also admonished, don't give up. They are told they're actually going to be protected. In contrast to the other six where persecution is coming, this group is going to be protected. But sometimes it's harder to watch other people suffer than suffer yourself. And so perhaps that's why he warns them, don't give up your faith. Even though you're going to see your brethren enduring hardship, don't give up your faith. You've done well, keep doing well. And then finally, you get the church in Laodicea. There's nothing positive said about Laodicea. He says, I wish you were hot or cold. And sometimes I think we think hot is good and cold is bad. Uh, but I really think he's doing the illustration of water here. Cold water you can drink and it's refreshing. Hot water um, you can use to cook and boil or, or wash yourself. Lukewarm water is kind of useless. And it's disgusting. You spew it out of your mouth. You take a cup of water. You set it outside during the summer. And then at the end of the day you try to drink it. That's the picture that he's painting when he says, You're lukewarm. I want to spew you out of my mouth. Because you're not doing anything. That Your confidence is in your riches, not in God. I wish you were trying to do something. Either you love truth like the Ephesians or you love, you were serving and doing good deeds like the, uh, the people in Thyatira. But you're, you're doing neither of that. You're just sitting by and uh, doing nothing. And you need to be zealous and repent and just do something, Laodicea. So if we had to summarize what we see being discussed, what he praises them for, what he rebukes them for... I will put it into two major categories. But before we list those, I just wanted to make a side lesson for us and every congregation. You think about this. Think about being one of the members in one of these congregations and Jesus literally writing you a letter. If Jesus were going to write the Norfolk Boulevard Church of Christ a letter, what would it say? What would he praise you for? What would he rebuke you for? If he was going to write the Edgebrook Lane Church of Christ, where I preach in Sycamore, a letter, what would he say? What would he praise us for, and what would he rebuke us for? Because we either are his group or we're not his group. And we need to be thinking in those terms. We can't just think that we're okay, that we have a reputation that we're alive, and say we're good. Or be confident in our present situation like the Laodiceans, because that may not be the case. But I'll leave you to consider that for yourselves and get back to categorizing what we see in this scenario. I would group it into two categories. One I would call broadly, generally, admonishment. You, you think about what he tells to Ephesus. He praises them for their emphasis on truth. He tells Smyrna, keep holding faithful. He tells Pergamum, stop listening to the teaching of Balaam. Similar to Thyatira, separate from Jezebel. Um, Laodicea, be zealous and repent. He's, he's giving them warnings. He's giving them encouragement. He's giving them exhortation. He's admonishing them to teach and to practice what they should. But that's not the only kind of thing he talks about. He also talks about service. 
He talks about the love that Ephesus should have. He, he, he praises Thyatira for the devotion to love, faith, and service. And he praises the greater deeds. He says, Sardis, you have incomplete deeds and you need to finish them. The good deeds you started, but you didn't actually finish. But here's a question. Which one does he spend more time on? And this begins to answer this question of what is the primary purpose of local symbols? When you read this, these letters to seven different churches, you're not just reading one letter to one church. You're getting a pretty broad scope of the kinds of things Jesus is concerned about in his local groups when you read these letters. So what is he first and foremost concerned about? I think it's pretty clear the admonishment gets a lot more attention than the service. This is not unlike what happens in Acts 6. Acts 6 about the only time when the universal church, at least in, that's alive, that's inside the bounds of history, is the same as the local church, because all the Christians who've been baptized into Christ um, are in Jerusalem at this point, as far as we understand. And there's an issue that arises that the widows who were from, uh, from the surrounding regions of of Israel, So not from the natives. So not, they're not from Galilee. They're not from Judea. Um, they're the ones who lived in Rome. They're the ones who lived in Ephesus. They're the ones who lived these other places but had come to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost and stayed. Well, these widows are getting overlooked in, in the provision that these Christians are, are giving to take care of them. Now, it seems to be unintentional. Maybe the, the native Jews just thought that the, uh, the other... Uh, the, what we might call the diaspora Jews are going to take care of those Greek widows. These are all Jews by, uh, by birth, but they're li- Greek in the sense of where they lived originally before this event. And when this is brought up in, in Acts 6, the apostles respond in verse 2, So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. And so they go on to say, okay, so you should choose seven men who are going to oversee this work. They don't ignore the problem. They don't ignore the situation. But they say it's not good for us and in our roles to neglect the service of the word to serve tables. Something takes precedence. Something takes priority. And in this case, it was more important for the apostles to be, remain committed to that. They don't ignore the problem. It's not that the service shouldn't be happening. But... It is not the most important thing. So for the rest of the lesson, what we're going to do is we're going to try to flesh out this admonishment. What should that look like in a local assembly? So we're going to look at several passages and then try to kind of clarify, describe what, uh, what we see here. So first go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Picking up in verse 11. Paul tells them, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you also are doing. But we request, we, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give instruction that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Verses 11 and 14 to 1, I want you to focus on the most. Before we get there, just notice verse 12 and 13, where he talks about those who have charge over you in the Lord. In my opinion, that refers to the elders. Preachers are told to teach. Preachers are told to share the gospel. But elders are the ones who actually have authority. Or even could be thinking about fathers guiding their families. But I think he's primarily thinking about elders over congregation. He says, appreciate them in love. Listen to their instruction as they seek to guide and teach you. Appreciate their efforts for those who diligently labor among you. Esteem them very highly. Don't take elders for granted. Recognize the work they have to do and listen to them. Let them lead. Trust them to lead. That doesn't mean elders are infallible. They're not. There's actually a system given in 1 Timothy 5 for when you think an elder has sinned. But understand 
It's a difficult job to be an elder. But going back to verse 11 and 14, which is the main point I want to see from these verses, he says, what are we supposed to be doing? Encouraging others. Building others up. Verse 14, admonish the unruly. The word admonish means to put in front of your face. Do you know what happens to me sometimes? Sometimes I forget what my purpose is. I forget what really I'm supposed to be about. I I forget why I'm still here on this planet. And I need you to remind me. I need you to put it back in front of my face and say, hey, David, this is what you're about. This is who you are. This is why God has you here as a member of his one body. I need you to admonish me. Your brethren need you to admonish them, to remind them what they're about. These unruly aren't necessarily walking around the street beating people up in that sense. Maybe they are. And that needs to be admonished. Because that's not what God's people are about. But this unruliness is that you're not living a ruled life. You're not listening to the purpose. You're not listening to the guidance of God. And we need to uh, be rebuked when that is the case. But that's not everyone. Encourage the faint-hearted. Sometimes life is just so hard to bear up under. Sometimes it's because we don't feel good enough for God. Sometimes we feel like we'll never get over some temptation or sin we keep falling into. We need to encourage those who have faint hearts. We need to help the weak. In any given scenario, some brethren may be stronger than others. There are certain temptations that will never tempt you, but they will tempt others. And vice versa. We need to help those who are weak. And in doing so, we need to be patient with everyone. And I'm going to say about that in a second. A similar passage where Jesus is actually talking in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, he tells the disciples, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, you take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I'll, I'll just note this. This isn't the main point we're going to make here. But notice how he talks about what the individual is supposed to do and then what the church is supposed to do. It's pretty clear he's not talking to the universal church here because how could you take an issue like this to all of the saved who are on the planet. Again, we made the point the universal church is even bigger than that because the dead stay in Christ when they pass. We don't know all those who are Christians. We don't know the whole number. We couldn't possibly do that. He's clearly talking about the the local church in this sense. When he ends, if they don't listen to the first two tries, take it to the church. But before he gets to the local church, it starts where? With the individual. The universal church, individuals who make up the universal church, each have responsibility if they see someone sinning or heading down a path that might lead to sin, then they have a responsibility to try to talk to that brother or sister about it. If they don't listen to you, well then take another two or three who can witness. And this witness isn't just about watching you two argue. This is about having people who can testify that yes, You did that. God says that's wrong and and you need to change. Who can back up your point you're making to your brother or sister? And then if they don't listen, then you take it to the local group as a whole. This is also one of those passages where Jesus is just assuming you're going to be a part of a local assembly. (laughs) Do you see how that's part of the, the implication here? He doesn't say if you are or when you are. He says, no, do this. And again, we can't be talking about the universal church because we couldn't do this for the universal church. You just going to assume you're going to be a part of a local group of Christians. That we need to be taking care of, holding people accountable to God's truth. Because life and death hangs the balance. We've already looked at 1 Corinthians 5, 4 through 5 several times, so I won't even actually read it tonight because I'm sure you probably are getting to that memorized by this point. It's the situation of the brother in Corinth. 
But he urges them, we want his soul to be saved in the day of the Lord. So that's why I'm urging you to make the point to him, we don't really have fellowship because you don't really have fellowship with God. And so we can't pretend like everything's okay. Because I want your soul to be saved. Galatians 6 is similar, but maybe a little bit more broad. It says, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so you, will not be, you two will not be tempted. He, he urges them, if, if you are walking with God and you are spiritual, then, then reach out to those brothers who are being caught in temptation. Reach out to those sisters who are being caught in temptation. Do it gently. Just like he tells us to be patient with everyone in 1 Thessalonians. But reach out. Be aware that you can be tempted. None of us are infallible. None of us are beyond falling through any temptation. So be careful, but don't ignore it. Reach out to them. In 1 Corinthians 6, this is going to be probably a surprise to, to many of you. 1 Corinthians 6, he's rebuking the Corinthians. He does it a lot in the book of Corinthians. He's rebuking the Corinthians because he says, Does any one of you, when you have a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Now, when he talks about neighbors, you actually think he's thinking of brothers and sisters in Christ. And the reason I think that is he's saying, Why do you take them to the pagan court system and not take them before your local brethren? I don't know about you, but if, if my Muslim neighbor or my Hindu neighbor wants to take me before their religious court, I'm going to be disinclined to, to go because I don't, I don't know the system. I don't know what they think. I don't know how this is going to turn out. So I, I don't think he's talking about when you, when you have a problem with your neighbor who's a pagan, take him before the church so that you can get a judgment. Because the pagan neighbor is probably going to say, no, I'm not going to do that. We're going to go to the proconsul over here. Um, because I know this system. My point here is I think he's talking about brethren primarily here. It says, when you have an issue with a brother or sister and you feel there needs to be reconciliation and restitution, don't go to the court systems. Do you not have someone in your congregation who is wise enough to know justice, who is mature enough to judge fairly and render a verdict you can accept, both of you, since you're brethren? I don't know how often this happens, but Paul's pretty plain here. He's like, why are you taking them to the secular courts and not going before your brethren who should know justice and righteousness and God's law and what's fair? He goes on to say, in fact, it's, it's a loss that you're even having these problems. You should let yourself be taken advantage of rather than creating these problems. But he says, if you, if you need justice, go to the family. Another way to think about this is if we are a family in Christ, which the New Testament and the Old Testament constantly paints that picture, God's people are a family, then the way we handle family matters should be different than the way we handle non-family matters. If you're my brother or sister in Christ, the way I handle any problem with you should be different than the way I might handle with my neighbor. Because we don't just share the bond of humanity. We share the bond of the blood of Jesus. You are my brother. You are my sister. And I will love you as such. And so if we have a problem and we can't work it out, we need to go find a brother or sister who we trust who can help us work it out. So if we summarize these things, and again, these are not all the passages we look at that cover this idea. But I think it gives a pretty good basis to start from as we continue to think about it further uh, in our own personal study and lives and, and congregations. But we are to be a group that admonishes each other, reminds us of our purpose. We are to be a group that comforts us when we feel weak and overburdened and unable to continue on. We need to be a part of a group and be a group that holds each other accountable to God's truth. We need to do that gently. We need to recognize sometimes there is judgment in applying the principles of God. It's not always clear cut. And that's why we need guidance. Sometimes we need guidance to be good parents. Because children don't come with manuals. Sometimes we need guidance on what kind of job we should take or what kind of school we should go to. Because until you live life, you haven't lived life. Sometimes we need guidance on the judgment one should make. It, 
Some issues aren't right and wrong. Some are wise or unwise for the purposes of God. If, my, if, my uni- if I'm part of the universal purpose, the universal church of being conscious for his praise and being his companion and, and proclaiming his excellencies, there's some choices I can make that will help that and some that will hinder that. They may not be right and wrong, but they do affect the outcomes or my effectiveness as a member of God's one body. The local assembly needs to be that kind of assembly. And there's two points I want you to see as we, as we consider as these as a whole. The only two of these passages even mention the actual assembly. 1 Corinthians 5 mentions when you gather as a church, do this. And then in Matthew 18, he mentions that taking it before the local assembly. But most of these passages don't apply to what happens only within these four walls. That was something else that I misunderstood as a, as a child, that re- really the local assembly, in my mind, was limited to what happens within these four walls of the church building. But the responsibilities and the purpose of the local assembly go far beyond that. It doesn't stop when I exit this building. On top of that, None of the passages we mentioned specifically talk about elders or preachers or deacons or many of the men we see in roles in a local congregation. Now, he does talk about those who have charge over you, where he's urging the brethren to appreciate them. But what that means is all of these things, all of these purposes, are my responsibility, whether I'm the preacher or not, whether I'm an elder or not that every single member of a congregation bears some of this responsibility to their brethren, to comfort and hold accountable and give guidance and judgment. Sometimes you might say, you know, I I don't know what to to tell you. I don't have the wisdom to give you guidance, but maybe you can go talk to so-and-so. That might be your job at some point. I don't know what to tell you, but maybe this person does. But it's all of our responsibilities. Now, don't get me wrong. Elders and preachers do have a particular responsibility here. We'll look at just two passages to illustrate that. Acts chapter 20. Acts 20 is one of my favorite passages when it comes to what elders do and who they should be. We won't read the whole thing. Paul's talking to the elders from Ephesus. And picking up in verse 25, he says, And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. This is the last time you'll see me. And this is after Paul spent years with the people of Ephesus. Paul usually traveled from place to place to place pretty quickly, spending a couple months at a time. Ephesus, he spent three whole years there. It's the longest place we know he ever was. And so these elders are upset. At the end of the story, they hang on his neck and they cry because they loved Paul. And he says, you'll never see me again. Verse 26, therefore I testify to this day I am innocent of the blood of all men. It's a reference to Ezekiel. When God tells Ezekiel, I'm going to give you a message. And if you speak my message and they ignore you and they don't repent, then their blood is on their own hands. But if you do not speak their message and they don't repent, their blood is on your hands. Paul takes that idea and says, look, I am innocent of the blood of all men because I Preach the message of God. Verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. He makes the point. The reason I'm innocent of the blood of all men is because everything God gave me, I gave to you. Every revelation I knew, I shared with you. Every teaching that I was familiar with, I gave to you. I taught the whole purpose, the whole counsel. Here's an important point we need to realize. Teaching only part of God's purpose or part of God's counsel kills people. The book of Hebrews is all about the Hebrew exhorting people not to go back to what? God's old law. It was God's law, but it was now only part of the revelation of God. And he says, if you go back to that and you reject the new covenant of Jesus and you stomp on the blood of the Son of God, all you can expect is a fearful judgment. Partial teaching from God kills people. 
So Paul says, I gave you the whole counsel. And so what do you need to do? You need to be on guard for yourself and for all the flock. God's made you overseers over this flock. And it's your job to shepherd them. It's your job to take care of them. He says, verse 29, I know. He says, this is going to happen. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. One of the things that I think is so sad in our culture and the religious world in America is how many leaderships and administrations of churches across denominations don't appreciate Paul's warning here. He says, life and death hang in the balance. Souls are on the line. Wolves are coming, and they will ravage your flock if you don't pay attention. And when you look out and you see all the playing going on in congregations, you see all the focus on simply having fun or simply building camaraderie, and you think, do they not know there's a dragon sitting at their door waiting to devour them? Revelation 12, my favorite chapter is Revelation, because he paints this vision. Here is a dragon just waiting to eat you. Paul's trying to get this across to the elders in Ephesus. He says, life and death hang in the balance. It's your job to pay attention. It's your job to guide. And that's why as flocks, that's why sheep in the flock, we need to listen to the elders. Now, he commends them to God and to his words. We don't listen to the elders without the word. And we need to compare what they're telling and teaching with the word. Because that's God's word. But these are not games we're playing. This is eternally serious. Preachers also are given a task to exhort, a particular responsibility Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 when he says in verse 3, As I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than the furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love. From my pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. As Timothy, I left you in Ephesus so you could exhort, so you could teach. You could help people not listen to the false teaching and be distracted with the, with the false ideas and things that don't matter. The mere speculation. Sometimes information or ponderings do not accomplish God's work. Sometimes the questions we have about God or his word don't matter. And we need to recognize that. If the issue I have or the question I have does not change how I live my life before God or how I serve my brethren or what I do or what I think about God, it may not be worth my time because Satan is so good at subtle poison. He's so good at distracting us from what actually matters. What our actual purpose is. And that's what has happened in so many churches across denominations. They've mixed the purposes of the universal and the local church. And they don't actually understand their charter. And that's one of the reasons why so many churches are shrinking across denominations. Because they don't know the goal. Paul says simply, why do we preach? Why do we teach? What are we actually trying to accomplish? We're not just trying to get people to know some stuff. We're trying to get them to love Timothy. Love that comes from a pure heart, from a sincere faith, and a clear conscience. Anytime I stand up to preach... I should have a very clear goal, a clear biblical goal that I can point to scriptures. God wants people to know this. He wants them to understand this and do this. And it's my job to try to convey that 
And I normally will actually express that goal to the congregation so they know whether or not that was accomplished or they need to ask further questions so that we can reach that goal. We're not just trying to get people to know things or just like being in a local church. One of the primary goals is we're trying to get people to love. So why does this matter? I hope I've made that point several times throughout this lesson, but let's sum up. The universal church is God's gift to the world. The universal church is the servant in the world, Ephesians 2.10, meaning us as individuals. And the local church is God's gift, the universal church. To, To equip... To remind, and it's important because we need to understand what the primary purpose is, which I would suggest is that admonishment, that training, that equipment. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. I meant to actually start there, remind us of the past. We go to Ephesians chapter 4 real quick as we wrap up. This passage is so helpful for me to know who I'm supposed to be as an evangelist. What my job is with other Christians. Where in verse 11 he says, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ. That God gave gifts to his people, in the form of apostles and prophets, which we still have today in the written word that God preserved. But he also gave us evangelists, and he gave us pastors, and he gave us teachers, pastors referring to elders here. And the reason he gave those gifts is so that the body, individual Christians, the the, the one body can be built up for service and work. That's why I created local groups. That's the primary objective, the main objective for local assemblies to have. Are we fulfilling those purposes? Are we accomplishing what God envisioned? It's also important because it begins to get at the heart of this question. Why don't people want to be a part of local churches? It's very common in our culture. But why is it? Who would not want to be a part of a, of a group like this? Who does these kinds of things? Well, what, some people wouldn't want to be a part of a group like this because they're arrogant. They say, I don't need a group like that. I don't need anyone telling me how to do this. It's me and God and we're good and I can do it on my own. I don't need anyone holding me accountable. I don't need anyone telling me um, how to judge wisely my life and live it so I can fulfill the purposes God's given me. I don't need that. I can, I can do it by myself. How arrogant do I have to be to look God in the face and say, I don't need your gift. I know you created this, this local assembly structure and you organized it um, uh, and, and you gave elders and you gave evangelists and you gave a place for me to be equipped, but, but I don't need that, God. That would be pretty arrogant to think that way. Or maybe they're not arrogant. They don't actually want, they don't actually think they can do it all by themselves, but they don't really want to do it. That there are some people who want to have the name that they are alive, but they, don't, they want to live in their sin. They want to live in the death. They want to pretend like they really love God. They want to pretend like they, they appreciate his, his will and what he's done, but they don't want to live accountable to what it says. And so they stay away. They separate themselves. This is Proverbs 18.1 um, that talks about the man Uh, who separates himself because he seeks his own desires. And so what's happened to so many churches is they've stopped 
doing these things. They stop talking about sin. They stop confronting people who are living in sin. And they just kind of hope people maybe realize it eventually and let them be part of their assemblies. But that's not the way God designed local assemblies. That's not their purpose. Now, there may be some that really are just, just ignorant. They don't know. They, they, they've been told that they don't need to focus on these issues, that they're not big issues to God, and so they don't spend time thinking and studying these topics. That is a possibility. But I expect that many people who, who stay away from local assemblies, who do these kinds of things, who exhort and encourage and comfort and want to be a part of your life so they know what's going on, probably fall into one of these two categories. And the reason this matters so much is because if we don't know why we're here, we can't fulfill God's purposes. We can't do what God wants if we don't know what that is. So are we fulfilling God's purposes? As a local group, whatever local group we're a part of, is that what's going on? But again, this doesn't matter without Jesus. Without his sacrifice and without salvation in his name, and if I haven't confessed him as my Lord and Master, if I haven't repented of my sins, if I haven't let him wash me clean in the waters of baptism, then none of this really matters. This is the after part. This is the continuation of that beginning journey. But it starts in Christ. And so if you need help doing that tonight, or you need help understanding that, there's a lot of people here who'd be glad to sit down, talk with you, help you figure out how to serve God faithfully. Or if you are in Christ, and there's something in your life that you need comfort for, or you need exhortation or guidance, or you need someone to hold you accountable because you can't manage to beat this sin yourself, I also know there's a lot of people here who would be glad to try to help you with that. People who want to be your family. People who want to love you with every fiber of their being. So if you have any spiritual need, please let us know as we stand and as we sing.